Hey guys, Abel here, back with our weekly interviews, sort of. I actually had a really awesome interview prepared for you this weekend with someone that I've been really looking forward to getting on here, but the interview flopped in the most ridiculous way ever. So unfortunately, I could not make that happen, so I decided to do one of my good old SSD radio hours when I'm selecting a few clips from some of my oldie but goldie podcast episodes And in these ones, I'm often selecting clips that I think are uniquely valuable in some ways and I think have been underwatched or underlistened to by the YouTube and podcast listener crowd. And that's what I want to do here as well. So in this particular episode, I'm going to be introducing some clips from three different interviews and we'll be covering the topics of food addiction, the question of whether we are evolutionarily designed to binge on tasty foods, what the best body composition is for health, and the fastest pace at which you can crash diet, basically. So if this sounds good, then let's get into it. So on place number one will be two short clips from my interview with Dr. Stefan Yene, the episode with whom is one of my personal very favorites because he shed a degree of depth on the topic of how our brain is being manipulated by various cues to engage in eating behaviors and the consumption of the types of foods that are leading to obesity and just increased body fatness over time. This is one of those podcast episodes of mine that I have re-listened at least three or four times because it has just provided so much depth on this topic. So the following two clips are going to be discussing the question of food addiction and whether there really is such a thing as being addicted to certain foods like pizza and ice cream or chocolate, which women are often claimed to be addicted to, or our brain simply enjoys engaging in fun activities and eating tasty foods just happens to be one of those. And whatever foods happen to fit the bill here is going to suffice for us. And then the other topic we'll investigate here is whether humans are not only wired to seek out calorie-dense tasty foods, which is the case that Stefan is making in his book, but are also wired to maximize the amount of calories that we put down at any given time when we come across some highly calorie very dense food source packaged in some very tasty format. In other words, are humans wired to binge, not just simply consume tasty foods? I personally think that both questions are fascinating to investigate, mainly because I think all of us have at least some personal experience on both topics. So on the food addiction side of things, I think most of us at one point felt a compulsion to buy certain items in the store that we really liked and regularly ate, or we really craved eating certain things at the end of our meals, especially we knew that they were in the house. And when we started a cut, for example, we all missed eating certain foods tremendously that we may have cut out. On the other hand, I think we also all experienced how quickly we have gotten used to not eating something once we have settled on a new way of eating. Or if, let's say, we were in a certain location where we did not have access to certain foods that we loved, I don't think our hands and legs were shaking from the withdrawal symptoms of not being able to consume that food. You also probably have experienced that the cravings towards foods are pretty malleable and adaptable in that what you crave is very much dependent on your reference point. For example, a person eating many thousands of calories of highly refined and processed hyperpalatable foods every day might only be craving the most intensely flavored calorie-dense foods. 
Whereas a lean person eating a much blender diet composed of wholesome foods for the most part might be highly appreciative of something much simpler, quote unquote, junk food like French fries and some ketchup. And then if you ask a bodybuilder who had been dieting for, say, six months, he might at some point have severe cravings for more chicken breast and steamed veggies because he is just so depleted at that point. So it's an interesting phenomenon that is definitely worth discussing. And then on the binge eating front, I think this is a no-brainer. I mean, clearly there are things that drive us towards highly impulsive and compulsive eating behaviors that are not just mediated by hunger or even by taste. Because I don't know about you, but when I maximally want to enjoy the taste of something, then I eat slowly, I savor every bite, and the whole experience has a bit of an artistic element to it, almost like a wine tasting event. And that's not the kind of behavior that you see when someone impulsively rips open the box of the food item that they're about to binge on and starts eating like a person who hasn't had a bite of food in a month. Uh, if you had a binge experience yourself, you probably also can recall how you're kind of turning into a zombie before the binge, whose thoughts are not really clear. You have these rationalizing thoughts in your head, which deep down you probably know are bullshit, but in that moment, they just feel weirdly real. You feel this strange adrenaline-like rush. So clearly, you get into an altered state on a psychophysiological level. So... Could this be something that is wired into us through millions of years of evolution? Well, let's talk about this with Dr. Stefan Guiene. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question that brings up um, some topics that I think uh, are really informative. So I think it's kind of uh, a semantic issue, honestly. So it's really wordplay, whether we call it addiction or not. Um, but I think everyone agrees that some people show addiction-like behaviors in response to certain types of foods. So the types of foods that I was talking about earlier, generally calorie-dense combinations of fat and sweet or salty, savory types of foods. Uh, not always, by the way. There are exceptions to that, but those are the two most common. Um, yeah, so it's very clear that if you look at um, if you look at what drug addiction is, if you look at what gambling addiction is, for example, those are two things that everybody agrees you can become addicted to. If you look at those uh, and you say, what really are the core elements of addiction that we see here, and do we see similar things in people who seem to be addicted to food, what you see is that, yes, there are very important similarities. And in fact, if you, if you apply criteria that were developed to identify drug addiction and gambling addiction and other well-established addictions, if you apply those to food, you see that actually a lot of people would be defined as being addicted to food. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about food in general. People aren't addicted to celery sticks. People are addicted to specific types of food that contain properties that spike our dopamine beyond where it should be spiked and beyond where it was spiked by the food that our ancestors had. And so basically we've optimized food to spike dopamine because that's, that's what we do. Dopamine is motivating, it's reinforcing, and so it shapes our behavior in the direction of producing dopamine-increasing stimuli. That's why we have pornography. That's why we have crack cocaine. That's why we have you know, all these drugs and all these stimuli in the modern world that the basic stimulus is not necessarily harmful. Like... Um, 
coca leaves are used traditionally in South America, and it's a mild stimulant. You chew it, it's like drinking a cup of coffee. Uh, poppy pods were used medicinally for thousands of years um, just as a tea to reduce pain and uh, physical and emotional pain. And, and we now, you know, we've, through, the, through chemistry, we've turned that into fentanyl, which is like this incredibly powerful uh, both medical drug and drug of abuse that's even stronger than heroin. So like basically we've just gotten better and better at spiking our own dopamine. There's, there's sex, like, you know, pornography on the internet is not something our ancestors had. Uh, so anyway, we've, we've just come to be able to refine all these stimuli through the progress of technology and affluence. We're just too good at satisfying our own desires, I think is really what it boils down to. Um, and in the health um, domain, our desires are related to calorie-dense refined foods and minimizing physical activities. And we've just been really good at, in, at through the advances of technology, at satisfying those desires that used to be good for us and now are not. Um, but, okay, I just took a tangent, apologies, but I'll get back to the food addiction thing now. Um, addiction, it's controversial. I want to acknowledge that in the um, scientific community, it's controversial to say that uh, people are addicted to food. Some researchers would, would say that there is such a thing as food addiction. Some would say that there isn't. But everyone agrees that some people have behaviors that look a whole lot like addiction um, when they are around certain types of food. And so it's really just a question of whether we attach that label of addiction to it or not. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, I don't really care. I think food addiction, you know, if you ask me, I think it actually does exist. And I think we're reluctant to admit it because it sounds like it, it makes it makes it kind of makes it forces us to accept that a lot of people have a much more serious problem with food than we would like to believe. Um, but I think the other thing to keep in mind is that it, the, the idea of addiction is really an arbitrary distinction. So essentially you can think about what, what addiction is. It's fundamentally, it's excessive motivation to engage in a uh, behavior that's harming you. So you know it's harming you, but you're just so, you're craving this behavior so much that you're engaging in it anyway, and it's really harming your life a lot. That's the fundamental characteristic of addiction. But, you know, I want to point out that it's really a semantic issue where we decide to draw that line of what's addiction and what's not. Because you can think about motivation. Motivation is on a spectrum. So, you know, at the lower end, you might have like plain celery sticks. Yeah, okay, I'll eat it, but I'm really not like craving it. I'm not that motivated to eat it. And on the upper end, you might have foods like ice cream and chocolate and things like that. So that's like the most highly motivating. Um, but there's everything in between, right? I mean, there are foods you could put anywhere on that spectrum, and there are motivational states that you could put anywhere on that spectrum. But we say, we decide, we draw a line somewhere and we say above this line is addiction and below this line is not addiction. But that's totally artificial. The fact is that certain foods are more motivating than others. And regardless of whether we exhibit behaviors that we call addiction or not, those foods are still going to make us overeat. So those foods are too motivating. And, and this isn't necessarily true for all people. Not everyone is, at, is equally susceptible to what I'm talking about. But for most people, 
those types of foods, those modern foods that push our dopamine buttons too hard, even if they don't cause us to actually become addicted, they still over-motivate us and that causes us to eat too much. So I think the idea of addiction, I'm not going to say it's not useful. I think there are people who have benefited from that and kind of as an admission that they really have a problem and sought serious treatment. But I think in a sense, it's a distraction from the fact that this is a problem that is affecting almost all of us, regardless of whether we call it addiction or not. Now, another another thing I, I wanted to ask you, uh, which is a related point, is that uh, one thing that I've kind of learned through your work and that I commonly like to reference is that um, hunter-gatherers, I think uh, it was the... Hansa, Hadza tribe, I believe, uh, that you, you mentioned that when they find something like honey and uh, basically they just go ham on that and they just drink like a liter of honey on the spot. And it just made me think that that kind of a behavior is basically what we would classify as like subclinical binge eating behavior, you know, in, in modern times. And that kind of just made me think that not only is the... Um, the action of seeking uh, calorie-dense, tasty foods, something that is kind of hardwired, but even the the act of gorging ourselves on these foods. You know, this is something that now we kind of uh, talk about as this flawed, kind of this personality flaw almost. And certainly this is something that all, all of us should try as hard as possible to eliminate from our lives. But at the same time, it seems like even the act of overeating to a severe extent occasionally is something that is wired into to our brains. Uh, is, do you think the same way about this? Yeah, that's a good that's a good thought. I hadn't actually seen it from that perspective, um, but what you say makes sense. I hadn't really drawn the parallel to binge eating, but yeah, what you say makes sense. I mean, clearly, hunter gatherers engage in extreme overeating behavior. That yeah, I guess you could call um, binge eating by modern standards. Uh, like you said, drinking a liter of honey at a sitting, eating 30 whole oranges that look very that are very similar in size and sweetness to what you see in a supermarket, eating five pounds of fatty meat at a sitting. I mean, basically, hunter-gatherers are opportunists. So when they have an opportunity to eat large amounts of calorie-dense foods, they will take it. And, you know, they don't have any guilty feelings about it. They don't... They don't uh, you know, try to throw it up afterwards or feel bad about it. This is a behavior that they want and they like and that has no negative social consequences. And the reason for that is that it's good for them. It is actually beneficial to hunter-gatherers to engage in gluttonous eating behavior like that. And the reason is that they it's hard to get food in a hunter-gatherer environment. They have to work to get their food. I mean, we think about our lives, it's so easy to get food in our lives. We go to the grocery store and we fill up shopping baskets full of food and then we go home and we eat it. There's tons of food in the fridge. We can just walk over to the fridge or the pantry and get food. Well, if you're a hunter-gatherer, your entire life revolves around getting food, practically. I mean, most of it. You're out for hours each day, generally, seeking food and having to work for that food. So you're having to climb trees. You're having to walk miles every day. You're having to sometimes run after prey, shoot bows and arrows. You're constantly practicing your, you know, bow and arrow use, your spear use, you're setting traps. Um, so it's your entire life revolves really around working for food. And it's hard to get food. And you don't always get quite as much as you would like. You don't always get exactly the right foods that you wanted. 
And so when, and so you're kind of always trying to, always trying to hit your target in terms of calories. Um, and that's really important because, you know, in today, like, I think it's good to be on the leaner side and, you know, that's better for your health. But in a hunter gatherer setting for them, their main concern is being too lean. So they want more calories so that they can fully power their immune systems and fully power their muscles and reproduce effectively and support their children and make enough breast milk, et cetera. And um, that's really important to hunter-gatherer survival to have those calories. And so when you're in a situation where all of a sudden you have access to enormous amounts of easily digested high-calorie food for not much work, you're going to take advantage of it. And that is going to help you survive and reproduce in that setting. And so, yeah, I think that it's plausible that our brains have this kind of uh, scarcity mindset deeply wired, probably some people more than others, and that it causes us to, and that's one of the things that causes us to, uh, to eat too much. And maybe, as you said, that binge eating behavior, maybe that's a kind of holdover and actually is a natural behavior that is just uh, maybe triggered too often by the, the modern environment. It's a good thought. All right, folks, so that was clip number one from Dr. Guiane. And with that, let's get into our second clip today with the man himself, Lyle McDonald, with whom the fitness industry has a sort of collective love and hate relationship that has now gone on for over a decade at least. I personally love the guy, which might be because I'm too insignificant for him to try to roast me. But anyway, we'll address the simple question in this clip of how fast you can go if you want to do a rapid fat loss protocol. And as well, whether it can be worth it to crash diets or you should always remain more reasonable. So the former question of how fast you can go is an interesting one, of course, since it has been a talking point in the fitness world for a long time. But to me, even more so interesting is the question of whether it can be worth it to sometimes to do a bit of a crash diet. You know, I, as someone who is putting out content about topics like this, and also a person providing coaching service for guys wanting to get leaner and more jacked, I'm frequently on the fence when it comes to recommending or discouraging people from fast fat loss protocols. And not so much because of the potential muscle mass loss risk, but more so because in my experience, the people most interested in fast weight loss or fast fat loss are often those that tend to be highly impulsive and non-rational and tend to alternate between two states, namely the state of wanting to maximize their desires to engage in overeating, which many of us have been there, and then in their moments of clarity and being frightened by their body fat gains having gotten out of hand, their desires to get lean as quickly as possible. So I'm always a bit reluctant to help someone through this latter process when I have a strong suspicion that I'm just helping someone to complete one half of a vicious cycle that is ultimately feeding a more and more distorted psychology. On the other hand, when I look at my own experience, I can look back at one or two crash diet periods as ultimately life-changing for myself because they have at times brought me out to the light and to a blank slate after which I could start building myself up and finally freeing up a part of my brain that was up until that point concerned about how I was looking and being dissatisfied. So with the right approach and mindset, 
and the right psychology, it can absolutely be a net positive, but not for everyone all the time. So we dive into discussing this question a bit with Lyle McDonald. Um, yeah, so, so you know, for people that, that aren't familiar with that concept, like of late, there's been kind of a focus. Yeah, so again, let me back up. Back in the day, you know, you would see things like you should never lose more than two pounds per week. Or people would math it out. I want to lose one pound a week, 500 calorie day deficit, 3,500 calories, one pound a week. That Those numbers never work. And even the two pounds per week thing was mainly for overweight individuals and was mainly more of a behavioral thing, right? When they've done like protein sparing modified fasts, you can see up to three quarters of a pound of fat loss per day in an obese individual, right? And obviously not a lean individual. Their deficit ends up being, you know, 2,500 calories a day. Uh, it's just staggering. So, uh, you know, the problem is you, you can't talk in absolute terms. Two pounds a week of weight loss for someone who's 250 pounds and two pounds for someone a week who's for someone who's 120 pounds, like those are staggering differences by percentage. If you took 1,000 calories a day out of the larger person's diet, okay, they may be eating 5,000 calories a day. 1,000 is no big deal. The smaller individual may be eating 1,800 calories to take that. So, so these numbers that came out of the, the general obesity treatment kind of got misapplied. So lately we've been focusing on percentages because regardless of your starting weight, half a percent a week is half a percent a week. One percent a week is one percent a week, right? It's, it's still – the numbers will be different. The 250-pound person is losing two and a half pounds. The 150-pound person is losing a pound and a half, but it's still one percent. So I think that's a much better way um, of, of setting goals. And what they've kind of found in the literature, researcher named Garth, and there's a whole lot of work on this, that like for leaner athletes, you know, 05 to 0.75% per week is a reasonable fat loss. And this is in the sense of avoiding lean body mass loss, which honestly never happens if protein intake is high enough, or at least if it happens, it's too insignificant to care about. A lot of this is in the context of performance, and this is kind of a critical distinction to make. If you're a performance athlete, a runner, a sprinter, a power lifter, even bodybuilding to a limited degree. It's not really a performance sport in the sense of what you do in the gym is very indirectly related to what you're trying to accomplish. But like, you know, you want to be able to maintain your, your performance in the gym. Bigger, faster weight losses tend to require either so much calorie restriction or so much activity that that becomes a problem. So, so those more moderate losses tend to be more more recommended. Whereas for somebody who's overweight, you know, carrying fifty percent body fat, percent and a half may be nothing. That may be trivially easy. They're not worried about performance. They're not going to lose muscle in the first place because the fatter you are, the less muscle you lose. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of where those numbers come from. And I, I generally agree with them. I, I presented them in the women's book in terms of you know setting goals, and it it, it very much depended on body fat percentage. You know, for generally a that leaner individual, again, 10 to 15% for men, 20 to 24% for women, 0.75% a week is probably reasonable, but that's if you're really looking at a long-term diet, right? If you're trying to take a female at 22% to contest lean, 10 to 12%, she's going to be doing that over six months. Obviously, you should probably be targeting more moderate fat losses. Same thing for the male, and at the end, they might be getting half a percent a week, but when you're grinding that last... 13 to 11 percent body fat in a woman or 12 to 10 you're you're on just the, the the razor's edge of overtraining exhaustion muscle loss performance loss you know st potentially stalling fat loss hormonal adaptations you're looking at but that's a six month long diet to the extremes over short periods you can do ridiculous stuff you can do it in the weight room you want to go train six days a week twice a day you can get away with that for about six weeks 
you'll explode afterwards, but for short periods of times, you can do literally, you can do some really ludicrous stuff. And that's kind of where rapid fat loss is that that's the end it sits on is you have to accept, yes, we're going to shoot for much faster rates of fat loss. So with sufficient protein, muscle loss is never an issue. It may look a little smaller, glycogen, water, et cetera, but, but true muscle loss is, is insignificant. And to your point, the guy who wants to be ripped for the beach probably doesn't care, right? You know, what people forget is that being a little bit smaller but ripped, you'll look a lot leaner than being a little bit big, or so you'll, you'll look bigger than you are. There, there's when, when guys get very lean, they look more muscular than they actually are. Right. You'll, you'll, especially with their shirt off, you'll see guys at contest, you'll see 165 pound male bodybuilders in clothes. They don't even look like they work out. And as soon as they get into their posing briefs, oh my God, they look gigantic because that's what being lean does for you. Women, not to as great a degree, but when they get leaner, their appearance tends to improve more with leaner, even with slightly less muscle. And I'm not talking about being skinny fat, but if they're, they don't lose a lot of muscle or even gain a little bit, losing that fat will tend to improve performance far more significantly. So what you have to accept with that though, is that you probably won't feel very good. People, well, it's weird. Some people get a lot of fatigue. Some people feel positively euphoric. Um, the, it's, there's a lot of individual difference here. Some people's brains seem to run fantastically on low carbs. Others just never get over feeling like crap. A lot of that's electrolyte intake, which is frequently insufficient. Like that's the big one. There's actually a, a, pro, a, a group dedicated to my book on Facebook, believe it or not. And nine out of 10 problems people are having electrolytes, just use a sodium potassium salt and salt food that solves most of the problems because that's a big part of fatigue. So you do have to cut back your weight training. And this is probably one of the places I see the most resistance. Well, I train six days a week. Well, I don't care if you train more, you can't do it on when you're on eight to 900 calories or you shouldn't more to the point. Um, so I significantly, I recommend significantly reducing Weight training to as little as two days a week in the, in that second version of the book, you know, I allowed for three to four shorter workouts, but you should be in the weight room more than 30 or 40 minutes because if you are, you're doing too much. I also recommend reducing the amount, the, the volume, the total number of sets because we know that intensity is more important than volume for maintaining muscle mass. And I would rather someone do three heavy sets and get the hell out of the weight room than do six less heavy sets because they don't have the work capacity to do it. So this is, we're really talking about physique changes here, right? If you're working with an athlete, a performance athlete, you probably don't have this option. You probably can't cut their now. There's 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 occasional differences. Powerlifters can occasionally get away with this. They're training, you know, they can do a short taper phase. I, I've heard from some that they prefer short aggressive diets over longer. You know, it lets them get back to normal training. So they'll do a couple of mini cuts. You'll hear some people talking about, and a mini cut is like a three to four week kind of short diet between gaining phases. It's for physique athletes or performance athletes. It's so you can train well-fed, but keep your body fat percentage in check. So that's another place where, but you have to adjust your training. Mainly you got to reduce your cardio significantly. And that's the other place people run into problems. People just are so programmed. I got to do cardio when I diet. Well, it helps. It can help. But in the case of very low calories, it can actually do more harm than good. And, and, and that's the other big mistake people make. Did your diet I did cardio six days a week. It didn't work. Well, what did I tell you? How many times in the book did I say you cannot do this? I realize you're special. I realize that you're the exception and you're a unique and delicate flower. But how many times did I say not to do this? But people don't listen because they believe you've got to be doing an hour of cardio 
a day to, to get lean. And, and the reality is that diet plus weight training has the same effects um, as doing all the cardio. So let the diet do the work, let the resistance training maintain the muscle, and just, just do the diet. So, so certainly that is, if you're willing to accept those limitations, you can get away with one to one and a half percent, you know, a, a, an extreme diet. For leaner people, it has to be very uh, reduced in duration. Like I said, generally I recommend two weeks in the book. If you need four, that's great, but it has to end. And even during that, you're going to need to raise calories to maintenance from time to time to offset some of the hormonal changes, refill muscle glycogen for training. Like this isn't straight four weeks of, of murdering yourself. So, so these are all – these are all, and I call mine a modified protein sparing modified fast. For that reason, I made some changes to the original in terms of scaling protein intake with body fat and activity, resistance training, essential fatty acids, modifying it. It's, not, it, it's important for everyone, but it's also for that leaner individual who has more concerns, especially if they're training. Yeah, it actually, it's uh, you brought brought up a lot of points that sparked some some thoughts in my head. One, one is just a note that um, when you mentioned that for short periods of time you can do ridiculous stuff, you just might feel like crap. And I talked about it on the podcast a few times that some months ago I did a really rapid fat loss phase. I think over the course of maybe a month, I think my average rate of fat loss would have been something like one point two percent body weight loss per week. And body composition wise, it was well worth it. Um, however, um, and, and during the process, I actually did feel this weird euphoric, um, sensation that you mentioned, probably a lot of it was psychological, but after that, you know, it took me a good month to let, you know, libido and all those things renormalize. So something to keep in mind for people. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's, there's certainly pros and cons to both approaches, you know, and, and, and of course there's individual differences. I know folks that, you know, some people would rather suffer a lot for a short period of time than suffer a little bit for longer periods of time. You know, I know a lot of people that, that once they establish you know, that, that they're not going to have a big rebound afterwards. And some people still do. Make no mistake. I'm not trying to say that this works for 100% of people. Some people are still going to rebound and, and gain a lot of weight back. And if that's true, this isn't for you. Like that's, you know, I've, I, I see a lot of people and they're like, yep, doing my third stint on RFL. Like, well, maybe this is not the right approach for you personally. And I feel that way about all diets. So there is, there is that individual difference. And you do have to be aware that there may be consequences. Um, you know, again, you see that out of contest diets when people diet very pathologically for physique contests, you know, chronic low calories, no days at maintenance, no diet breaks, too much cardio. They get there and then they're wrecked for months or longer. You know, it may take them five to six months to achieve any sort of normalcy. And that's just the price you're going to pay to get lean beyond a point that your body, you know, is going to really fight back. And it, it can Again, it's durational, it's individual, and you just got to you gotta make your choices. <laughs> and um, e- either way, it's going to suck one way or the other. All right, so thank you, Lyle, for that. And then the last clip I'll be playing to you is one from Dr. Mike Isretel, which is an almost two-year-old episode at this point. And in this one, we were talking about eating for health. So this was not a podcast episode focused on getting as lean and jacked as possible, but rather about being as healthy as possible. This episode is also one of my personal favorites. I've always been interested in being healthy besides just trying to be lean and building muscle. And I really enjoyed learning about this topic from someone that I highly respect. And this clip is basically about how being lean and generally just not overly heavy is a rather good thing for your health, which I guess will feed the confirmation bias for many guys who are already looking for an excuse to stay as lean as possible 
at all times and are freaking out once their abs blur out even a little bit. But hey, so it goes. So if you're hunting for information about why you should keep your calories lower and your activity levels higher, look no further. Here is a perfect source to confirm these personal biases. But all jokes aside, I think it's good to know that not getting overweight and being active is not just a vanity thing, but is also very much a health thing. And if you'll still be in the lifting and aesthetics game when you're over 50 or 60, that will be one of the best things you can do for your health. So without further ado, the final clip of the day with Dr. Mike Isertel. The question of body composition is actually a little bit more complicated, so we can speak to that in just a second. What I can say is how much food you're eating um, in relation to your physical activity is the only determinant of your body weight. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this calorie intake, or what's called calorie balance, is actually how – it's not defined as how many calories you're eating. It's how many calories you're eating relative to your physical activity. Right? So, and that really just determines your body weight. So that, that variable could actually be called body weight. It would be pretty much the same thing. Body weight is so intricately tied to health, it is difficult to overstate. Body weight is the best single proxy of health you can ever make without going directly to blood work. Um, the next thing after that is just blood work. <laughs> you got to do invasive stuff. But how much someone mm -hmm. weighs, especially in relation to their height, how big they are, is profoundly linked to health. And despite the many efforts of people in the fitness industry to say otherwise, people say, you know, BMI, right, which is a BMI is a kind of a statistical measurement of lar largeness. It's, the, you know, how, how heavy you are based on your height. People will say, oh, BMI doesn't matter. They're wrong. <laughs> There's no other way to put that. For the general population, how much you weigh relates to how fat you are incredibly, incredibly closely. Not very few people walk around super jacked. So for most people, how heavy you are and how fat you are mean almost the same thing. Now, for individuals that have a lot of muscle and very little fat that are much heavier than you would think, being heavier still costs you. It still costs you in health. Now, if that extra weight is muscle, that costs you much less than if it's fat. But it still costs you. So any individual that is big and lean and muscular, if all of a sudden health was number one to them, they should lose weight, period. But mm. because they have very little body fat, they can be as healthy as a person who has weighs less but just has more body fat than them. However, at any point, weighing less, if you're overweight, is better. It's just much better for people that are over fat than it is for people that are muscular. So, so take this example. If someone is, you know, maybe um, meter and a half tall or something, you know, meter, meter 65, something like that. And they weigh about, you know, I don't know, 70 kilos or they weigh, let's say 85 kilos, but they're jacked, they're lean. Simple question we could pr produce from a scientific standpoint is would they be healthier at 70 kilos? And the answer is almost always yes. Now, would they be healthier at 60? Ooh, at 60, they may actually be underweight, and then they could get healthier by gaining weight. But down to about maybe 65 kilos at that, at that height, you would be healthier the closer you were to 65K. And uh, if you were 90K, it, it, let's say you were 110K, you were an IFBB pro bodybuilder, you had 3% body fat, you would still be healthier if you weighed less than 110K. When 105 would be better than 110, 100 would be better, all the way down to 65. And because you're lean, that's great. But that still doesn't save you. And it's not a getaway, you know, it's not a get out of jail free card. 
being lean is awesome in its own right, but weight itself is negatively affecting health if you're overweight. It's just much less so if it's mostly muscle than if it's fat, but it's still an effect. Um, the, you know, one of the ultimate examples of that is people who are super muscular, world's strongest man competitors, IFBB pro bodybuilders. They're super jacked, super big. Their mortality rate, their rate of uh, illness is actually quite high. Uh, it's not something magical that you would be like, oh, they're super lean and super active. They should be living forever. They have mortality rates sometimes comparable to individuals that are of that same body weight um, and relatively active, but pretty fat. <laughs> they're not worlds away like you would expect if you think body fat was really, really what's wrong and, and muscle was just kind of a free thing you could gain without any ill health effects. So, so body weight is incredibly important. And, and, and for most people reading our book, they're not super jacked, you know, and a lot of times to get that jacked, so, you know, people, so if you read our book and you weigh 250 pounds, can you really look yourself in the mirror and say, oh, you know, it's, it's all muscle though. Like, I mean, I mean, my God, if you're 250 all muscle, you're probably using pharmaceuticals to get there, which are already bad for your health. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're probably carrying some excess body fat, and body weight, and you probably would be healthier if you were, if you were lighter. Can't state in either way. Body weight is really, really important to how healthy you are and the lighter you are to a point. Uh, and at that point is being pretty light healthier you are over the long term. Now, I have to say something really quickly. This is a, a metric, but it's also a value judgment. How healthy you are on average and how long you can live are trade-offs to other activities you may find to be more amusing and more uh, better uses of your time. For example, you know, I could easily, if I wanted, I could weigh a half of what I do. You know, I currently weigh like 240 pounds. Um, I could, you know, easily weigh one half of that and be uh, very, very healthy and, and live maybe till I was 90 or something. Like my, all my whole family is all like tiny little uh, hobbit looking Jewish people that live till they're a hundred. So uh, I could easily do that. But, but then I would miss out on the part of my life that lets me get a pump in the gym, you know, pull off my shirt to get a tank top, look in the mirror and, and like, look like a God or something. And I'm, oh my God, I can't believe this is real. That brings me such an incredible amount of joy. I'm willing to trade off some number of years of my life. Uh, it's a trade-off though. I understand that it is. There's no free lunch there, but just because you're less healthy being super jacked and super lean, um, you know, at some crazy body weight doesn't mean that you, everyone should try to make health their number one priority. I mean, for Christ's sake, life enjoyment should be a priority. And, and to be honest, you know, you could ask the question of how much fast food or pizza or ice cream should you eat if health is your number one and only priority? The answer is never eat any of that stuff. But who the hell wants to do that? I mean, why the hell are you alive? Just to be alive? Like, hey, I made it to 95. Then you're on your deathbed at 95. And they're like, so how was life? Like, it sucked. I lived it like a machine that was just trying to live as long as I could. And it, by living as long as I could, I made my life so sterile that I hated every moment of it. Well, that sucks, right? <laughs> the only thing we want to do is make these trade-offs kind of available. Yeah, it's certainly fine to say I could live to 95 and did everything perfectly, but I'm going to live to 85 and have a whole lot of fun, just measured fun. But nobody wants to say, okay, I'm just going to say fuck all of this and get up to 450 pounds and die at age 40. I mean, I don't think a lot of people want to die at age 40, right? So there's definitely some trade-offs to make. And by knowing diet and health principles, you can make intelligent trade-offs. So when we write this book, we're not saying everyone needs to be 120 pounds. If you want to live as long as possible, yeah, you should probably weigh very, very little, like a Buddhist monk or something like that. But if you you understand that, okay, at 240 pounds, you're going to have some of these negative health effects, but at 200 pounds, you're still going to be pretty jacked, pretty lean. 
and have much fewer, maybe it's your choice to stay closer to 200 or your choice to make the trade-off and go to 240. So it's all about using that, that information to your best abilities with your own moral judgments about what you want to do with your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Like you said, you might have a really healthy corpse when you die, but when you look back at your life, it sucked, then it's not, not a very good trade-off. But just, just still um, dissecting this a little bit, when we look at just simply being heavy, not necessarily over fat, but just heavy, why, why is it so bad for your body? Is it because of the extra burden on your heart and organs and the extra blood you have to pump? Or what, why, what is it so bad about it? Absolutely. That's it's one of the main reasons. So when I mean, your heart has to actually actively work to pump blood to everything, your heart uh, probably has only so many beats per, in it per lifetime. Um, and uh, if it uses more of those beats to pump blood around your big ass, then if you were smaller, you'd live longer. Um, your total amount of metabolic stress is higher. The amount of mitochondria that produce free radicals is higher when you're bigger. It's just more stuff, more engine to burn. And uh, the lifespan is thus longer because you accumulate metabolic stress faster. All of your organs are required to work harder. Um, kidneys being a very obvious one, actually, you filter more blood. You get blood pressure considerations when you're heavier. Now, a lot of the stuff can be mitigated with proper medication and, and making sure to be very healthy and active, but nothing beats being lighter as far as that's concerned. So just being big is laborious. And in every single instance, uh, of every single interspecies inter comparison, live less long time than smaller. Interspecies, uh, sorry, intraspecies, not intraspecies. So, for example, within dogs, right? We have dogs that are very small, and they're the same species that are dogs that are very big. Very big dogs don't live very long. You get a Great Dane, you got to go to five, six years with a Great Dane. That boy's going to die on you quick. You get a chihuahua, that thing's going to outlive you or something like that, right? It lives like 20 years. It's something unreasonable. It's like blind and can't see, but it's still alive. It's like 22 years old, so something insane. Great Dane is not going to live till 22 because the uh, dog physiology was not designed, literally not designed to support an animal that size. Human physiology was absolutely not designed to support humans that are gigantic, so humans that are gigantic burn through that physiology faster, right? Now, if you're an elephant, your elephant physiology is actually designed to support really, really huge animal. Elephants live, I think, 40, 40 or 50 years or something like that, which is pretty good, um, and they live that long because their physiology is designed to support that weight. But for humans, you know, we're not meant to be elephant weight, and some of us that get up to that kind of weight, uh, you know, six, seven, eight hundred pounds or whatever, uh, pay for it really, really fast. So within uh, considering almost every species within a species, there's an optimal rate range uh, for longevity and much lower and much higher than that is just going to cost your organs one way or another. And, and if that's muscle, it's good because fat does some particular things to your physiology that are not great. And also inactivity both causes high levels of body fat and it takes a, a toll on your physiology in other ways. Uh, so that's a much bigger problem. But even if it's muscle, it's still a problem. Now, is it much smaller of a problem? Totally. Like, so for example, I weigh, you know, 110 kilos or about 240 pounds. And my blood work, to be completely honest, is amazing. This is great, right? Um, could it be better if I was smaller? Oh, totally. But it was pretty good. Would I have the same blood work if I was inactive and fat? Oh my God, not even close. But it still could be better if I was smaller. So uh, it's one of those situations where, yeah, just pure body size because primarily of organ stress um, is, will cost you. And here's another interesting thing about body size, which we could say. Uh, you could be very healthy at a, a high body weight when you're younger. When you're older, a lot of the stress that body weight put on your joints and limbs 
starts to accumulate to the point where your ability to be physically active later in life is very hampered. You can be very healthy at age 40 at 110 kilos. At age 60, having walked around at 110 kilos for that long, your knees might be totally shot. I mean, they're just done. You don't have knees anymore as far as concerned. Now you're a candidate for knee replacement surgery, hip replacement surgery, et cetera, because of burdening yourself with that heavy weight your whole life. You are at poor health now. Your mobility is going to be restricted. And now the very physical activity that adds so much to your longevity and your health is something you can't do as much of as you need to. But if you spend your whole life weighing 60 kilos, man, you're going to be 80 and your bones are going to be fresh as fresh as ever. So there's not much of a burden on them at all. Exercise was a burden that made them stronger, but there wasn't that chronic burden of moving around being heavy. And if you've ever been really heavy, you know exactly how that actually feels. It feels like shit and you know you're taking a toll on your joints. Yeah, and and when we talk about you know being uh, over like having excess fat tissue, do you think there is a way to kind of be in that state but still be healthy? And and I spe I'll specify what I mean because there is a particular health professional individual who's pretty public actually, and he is I mean overweight to say the least, but probably is more obese if I'm being honest. And he is he's always saying that he doesn't care about fat loss and about about body composition. What he cares about is that his blood work is incredible and he's super healthy. Is do in your professional opinion, is this even possible to achieve? Yeah, absolutely is. The problem is, is there's a time delay that's not being figured out into that. You can be currently obese, and the high level of adiposity is causing very slow, sequential, unstoppable changes to your physiology that will eventually reflect themselves in poor blood work. But for literally years, you can be fat and look really healthy. And you are really healthy, but the fat is slowly taxing away your health. So that with a really, really big question, right, the super big question isn't necessarily, okay, am, am I healthy now, which is a good question. The question is, am I healthy now and am I setting myself up to be healthy later? If you are lean and you're healthy now, you're also not, you're not destroying your health later. There's nothing systemically going on that's going to be worrisome for you. If you are overweight now, you're very healthy now. You could be, but you won't be healthy later because the very fact that you're carrying a high level of adiposity is at a metabolic level setting up poor health later. That's been demonstrated very clearly already, incredibly clearly. So people who are overweight now and saying, it's okay, my blood work is good, they're living on borrowed time in some sense. I can put this to you, not an analogy, but actually a literal example. How many overweight teenagers are there? A lot. How many of them have poor blood work? Most of them don't. Most of them have good blood work. They really do. Why? Because they're fucking young, man. They're fucking kids. Kids can eat fucking pizza and ice cream every meal of the day, and they look fine. And they feel great. Even if they're over fat, that doesn't reflect on their blood work because they need time for those fat cells to destroy their metabolisms and make them unhealthy. And once that happens, holy shit. Here's a really big problem with that. Uh, high accumulation of body fat, just as an example, builds insulin resistance over long, long periods of time. For a long time, it's undetectable. Then you get pre-diabetic and you start to kind of be concerned. And then if you keep doing that stuff, you're diabetic, type 2 diabetic. After you become type 2 diabetic, you don't just reverse it. You're something you're burdened with for the rest of your life. It's more or less a permanent condition. Now, if you lose all of that body fat, become super, super lean, 
you can, from a blood work perspective, look no longer type 2 diabetic, but as soon as you gain the smallest level of body fat back, you go right back into a very, very deleterious state where someone else could have gained body fat back. And if they never were too type, type 2 diabetic, it's not really a big problem for them. You get heavier, lighter, no big deal. But once you're type 2 diabetic, you got to watch that shit super carefully because if you don't, you're paying for it right away. So that's a problem, right? So when, when people who are, you know, what is it called, fit but fat, uh, they're most, I think most people in the industry, most experts in obesity would say, good that you're not currently unhealthy, but now is the time to lose a lot of fat so that you can set up health for later because uh, otherwise you're just living on borrowed time more or less. Right. Okay. So I think we really exhausted this topic. And just to put a final point on this, if we look at kind of the ideal body composition for health, would it be something akin to like 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 a fitness model type of look? Maybe not not as lean necessarily, but something like that, which is a little bit more muscular than the average person, but not crazy huge muscular, and definitely is much leaner than the average person. Muscularity, uh, probably average muscularity is just fine. A little bit above average seems to confer a slightly, a slightly uh, good health advantage, especially as you get older. So, uh, you know, uh, let me put it to you in layman's terms. You know that guy at the office or at work or that kid at school that's like really skinny? And you're like, Jesus, how do you stand up and down? That's not enough muscularity to be optimally healthy. But as, someone, as long as someone looks like, like a normal, healthy young person, they probably have enough muscle to be as healthy as they'll ever be. Any additional muscle doesn't make you unhealthy. It just makes you be able to do cool shit like fight crime or whatever else we use our muscle, you know, take over the world. Um, so, uh, but on that note, so the muscle thing is really small um, kind of room for, for movement there. The, the minimum isn't that much at all. For body fat, uh, down to about 15% fat for women and down to a figure that is uh, as yet unclear in men, the leaner, the better. Period. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean we have to go insane and try to be as lean as possible all the time and ruin our lives. For men, if you're fit and healthy and active, anything under 20% is really not much to worry about from a long-term health perspective, uh, especially for adults. Um, anything under 15% is great. Under 10%, you're just killing it. So if you shoot for about 15%, if you're around 15 somewhere, anything below that is just bonus points. So you're good to go. For females... 25% body fat is like awesome. Anything below 25, between 15 and 25 is just rock star shit. So 25% or so. So if you're female at 30, you're not doing too bad. If you're at 35, uh, you could lose some fat and be healthier. If you're at 25, if someone, if someone really comes up to you when you're 25% fat as a female and says, you know what? You need to lose a ton of fat because otherwise you're going to be way healthier. That's just false. You're just going to be a little bit healthier if you go from 25 to 20, from 20 to 15. Below 15, you actually start to have uh, reproductive negative health effects for females, and it's not really actually recommended. But 25% um, for females, 15% for males, those are rough targets for the general population that if you're around them within like 5% or so, physical activity is what you should be worried about next. And, and then if you want a certain look, you have to understand that that look is largely independent from health. So, for example, if I if I walk into an office of people and everyone looks like about normal body size, nobody looks like super over fat, and most people are under 20, 25 percent body fat, and, and you're going to say, okay, you know, like, what can you tell these people, you know, as far as what they should look like physique wise? I'm just like, eh, they look fine, you know. It's from the health perspective, they, they look great. But then you say, okay, what about just from a physique perspective? Like, ah, uh -huh, you know, then we can make like critiques about muscle shape and symmetry and all this other crap. But that doesn't have as much to do with health as just being of a normal body size and not super over fat, under 20, 25% fat. So there you have it, guys. Lift, 
get in 10,000 steps a day, eat your low-calorie protein fluffs, and live long, gentlemen, and eventually you'll go to the grave as a ripped, aesthetic grandpa at age 120. After age 100, though, you can never be sure how much you have left, so once you pass your 100th birthday, start doing some DEXA scans at least every two months, and then you can ask your grandchildren to present your DEXA results when they're giving a speech at your funeral, and your pride and name shall live on for a long time. So that was this Radio Hour episode today. I hope you enjoyed this and it prompted you to listen or re-listen to these episodes. I linked to all of them in the show notes so you can find them. And with that, the next 20 seconds or so are dedicated to paying the bills. So check out the SSD Nutrition and Training course to build the best body you can that not only looks good, but is healthy and highly resilient, which you can get at sustainableselfdevelopment.com alongside with some extra goodies like Berge Fagerli's Zero Carb and Mayo Wraps ebook and join the SSD Facebook community at facebook.com slash groups slash sustainable self-development. Damn, this didn't even take 20 seconds. So happy rest of the weekend, everyone, and see you next time.